Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome. This is our fourth week of a series that we're calling Life. And we're trying to discover what does it look like to win at the game of life, and what's the roadmap for experiencing the abundant life that Jesus claims that he came to offer. Uh, For many of us, we might be shooting for the wrong target. We might have the wrong goal. What does it look like to have the right one? What does it look like to experience Jesus and the fullness that he has has to offer? So, I'm going to invite you to Open up right away uh, to Psalm chapter 1. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Um, They have Bibles in the back. I think our ushers will help you out. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Uh, We don't have any ushers, but we got awesome volunteers who are going to get you a Bible. (laughs) And since I didn't give an introduction, uh, my name is Andrew Devaney. I'm the outreach director here. And um, I don't regularly preach. Uh, so if, if you strongly disagree with today's message, Will will be back next week, and you can talk to him about that. <laughs> so week four is we're, we're trying to discover what does it look like to have a life rooted in the Scriptures? A life rooted in the Scriptures. And so if you'll join me, Psalm chapter one, you open up to the book of Psalms. It's the first Psalm. And um, Yeah, here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Just constant sustenance and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And you get this picture, this juxtaposition. The sinners, the wicked, and the righteous. And it appears to the psalmist that which differentiates those two camps is actually this posture that one has towards the law. He delights in it. He meditates on it. And the law, you know, I think when many of us hear this idea of law, we think of, you know, a bunch of rules or commands or uh, some, some disciplines or practices that we have to follow. But if you're, you know, a Hebrew or you're, you're, a, you're a good Jew, you understand the law not as just the Ten Commandments, not as just a bunch of rules that you're supposed to follow, but the law is actually the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, same five books that we have. And this, to the Jewish people, would have been considered the law. This is their story. 
This is the story of God forming the world, the story of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt, the story of God forming his chosen people. And the righteous, they delight in that story. They meditate on it day and night. They meditate on this law. And I think so interestingly, this word meditate, like this is kind of the gold nugget of, of this, uh, this text, is the Hebrew word, this word meditate, comes from the Hebrew word hagah. Will you guys say it with me? Hagah. I'm going to show you a quick video of what the Hebrew word Hagah would have meant to the original hearers of this passage. And this is like a minute and 40 seconds of just watching this, so we can cut it off now. <laughs> but to Hagah, to meditate, I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his book, Eat This Book. That's what the title is called. And he says, Growl, Hagah, usually translated as meditate, as in the Psalm 1 phrase describing, Blessed are the man or the woman who delights in the law of the Lord, or on which he meditates day and night. But Isaiah uses the word before that to refer to a lion growling over his prey, the way my dog worried a bone. Hagah is the word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for reading the kind of writing that deals with our souls. Meditate seems more suited to what I do in a, in a chapel on my knees, or my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with the Bible open on her lap. But when Isaiah's lion and my dog meditate, they chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. Isaiah's lion meditating on his goat, if that's what it was. My dog meditating on his bone. There's a certain kind of writing that involves a kind of reading with soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor and anticipate and take in the sweet and the spicy the mouth-watering, soul-energizing words of the Scriptures. One careful reader of this text caught the spirit of the word, and he said, Hagah means that a person who is lost in their religion, which is exactly what my dog is doing to his bone. He says, it's letting a very slow dissolving, like a cough drop, melt imperceptibly, in your mouth. To meditate, to delight in the laws, to sit and to hagah, to growl over it, to savor it, to taste it. And I think that's what the beauty of the scriptures are, is that as we sit with them, as we savor them, it's not just information that we take in, but it actually gets into us. It gets into our bones. It's like nutrients for us. It's the scriptures that keep us anchored firmly on the path of life and reveal to us the true good life, the life that we want to win at. Eugene Peterson in his book continues to say, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. 
We take it in to our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love. Cups of cold water, missions to all the world, healing and evangelism, and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration to the Father. Feet washed with the company of the Son. Friends, God does not put us in charge of forming our own spiritual lives. He doesn't put us in charge of doing it ourselves. The Bible, Scripture, is a primary means in which God gets into us and in which we get into the life of God. Are you with me this morning? It's how we come to know God. It's how we come to know God's mission. It's how we come to know ourselves as agents in God's story. Ultimately, Scripture teaches us how to win at the game of life. But if you're like me, it's not that simple. You know, I might say it like this. I don't really know if I'm allowed to say this in church, but I, I think for most of us, we, we actually have a problem with the Bible. We, we have a, a problem with the Bible. I, I'm not going to over-spiritualize this, this whole thing. You know, I, I get a sense that when I spend time with people here, when I spend time with friends, when I look at my own life, we not only have a problem with the Bible, but we're probably not really winning at the game of life. We're anxious. For many of us, we're overworked. We don't have time for like good relationships, friends. We're exhausted. We're burnt out. We're struggling to figure out how to be good parents, how to spend time with our kids. We don't know how to spend our money. We have credit card debt. We don't know how to give our money away. We don't know how to give our time away. We can't figure it out. We barely find ourselves in prayer. We don't have any time to read Scripture. We barely have time to make it to church on Sundays. And I just think this is the reality of living in the modern world. Some might be a little bit better at it than others. So I want to ask a question. I'd like you to participate with me on this. I want you to raise your hand if somewhere in your household or in your car or on your phone, you own or have a Bible. And it appears that LifeWay research uh, proves right. You know, they would say that over 90% of Americans own a Bible. It's crazy in a world where, you know, Christianity is uh, slowly, the population is shrinking. There's a rise of what they would call the nuns, not Catholic nuns, but people who don't have a religion. Uh, Christianity is becoming less and less popular, yet the majority of Americans at least own a Bible. Even more interesting, the majority of Americans, they think the Bible is a good book. They think it's good for morals about a third of the population says it's actually really helpful. They believe that it's true, and they believe that it is life-changing. 
Now, this is where we begin to press a little bit. The majority of Christians actually don't read their Bibles, though. 50% claim that they've just read it a little bit throughout a year. 30% said they read it regularly. And 10% of Christians said they've read the entire Bible. Sells 25 million copies every year, and it's the best-selling book never read. It's interesting, though, because I, I think for most of us in here, we claim to be followers of Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, right? We've based our entire lives off the teachings and the principles and the story of Scripture and for many of us, we've never read it, or we don't read it. And I don't bring this up. This really is not a shaming tactic at all, I promise you. This is just kind of laying equal ground that we know what we're talking about and that we can get to the root of our struggle because I do believe it's a struggle. It's been a struggle for me. And I want to talk about what do we do with this book then? What do we do with the Bible? Because I think for many of us, we probably don't read it often. And I think that's because, one, and you just, you just kind of follow along, and if you align in certain places, and if you don't, it's okay, but I'm assuming that a lot of us don't actually really know how to read it. And that's okay. I think others of us don't, understand it, and that's even more okay. I just finished a Master's of Divinity, and I've realized how much I still don't know about the Bible. And let me, let me get a little more honest. I think for some of us, we don't even really like the Bible that much. We have, we have issue with it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint a picture of why I think that is and why I want to say as a church we understand the tension that we're facing in the modern world. So to begin, we don't understand the Bible. Well, that's okay. And I think sometimes people who do, they claim that they understand things that they really don't. But the Bible, 66 books, all individual books that make up this one book, full of many, many genres, it's poems, it's narrative, it's letters, it's gospel, it's story. It's actually written over, you know, two to three millennia of time. It takes place in Africa, in the Middle East. So we're talking about just you're being transported into an entirely different world as we're trying to read this book. And it was written in three different languages, which none of us probably know. Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and over time it was formed by the church and put together by the church. And there were some books that were left out and there were some books that were chosen. And I'm sure to many of us we go, huh, I wonder how that all took place. I think sometimes the Bible doesn't even really make that much sense. I mean, you open up to the first pages of it and there's a talking snake. 
And some of us have claimed that just, you know, we just think that is so like normal and literal. And I have never seen a talking snake in my entire life. You know, I go to the book of Judges. Or I go to the book of Joshua, and, you know, I remember learning this story about Israel, you know, circling themselves around the town of Jericho. And on the seventh day, what happened? Collapsed. And they had victory. And I remember learning that as a little kid and just thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what a courageous story. I start to read it now, and I go, wait, was this the beginning of God calling Israel to commit ethnic cleansing? To commit genocide? You know, what, what do we do with that? How do we hold that? You know, I got to seminary and I began to realize that there are a lot of different interpretations over this book. You know, some people really highly emphasize God's sovereignty, uh, tulip, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, that God has... Uh, kind of control over all aspects, while other people think that the universe is totally open and that we human agents are very much participating with God in creating the future. You know, there are some people that believe that we still, you know, fully speak in tongues, that there's prophecy, that there's healing, that miracles are real, while there are other people that totally believe that this is cut off. It was cut off after the early church. This might push a little bit more, I think, for some of us. We read the Bible and we go, the Bible seems quite misogynistic. It's anti-gay. It's intolerant. There's polygamy. There's genocide. Promotes slavery. Racism. Are you guys tracking with me right now? The Bible does not always align with our, you know, modern world progressive views. It really does seem to be that the Bible is against, uh, you know, LGBTQ in some ways. That you shouldn't have sex before marriage. It contrasts with science. How old is the world really? Is it 6 billion years old or is it 6,000 years old? You know, the thing that began to concern me was that all of a sudden the heroes of the faith in the Bible, Abraham was a polygamist, Moses was a liar and a murderer, David, he was an adulterer, a murderer, and yet he's considered a man after God's own heart. I remember when I came out of my early days of Christianity and I started to realize these questions, I didn't even really know if I could trust the Bible any longer. I didn't know what to think about it. And my guess this morning is, is that for many of us, we have a hard time being honest towards the Bible. We have a hard time asking these challenging questions of the Bible because the reality is, 
is that some people hold to it so tightly and true, they, they won't even ask a question of it because it's the word of God, and other people have dismissed it entirely. So what are we to do with this book? Horrible, crazy things have been done in the name of the Bible. Murder of the Native Americans, slave trade from Africa, colonialism, Nazi Germany. Oftentimes we see people trying to predict the end times from the Bible. There's also been some of the world's greatest good that has come from the Bible. During the early days, Christians, when they were, when in the area of Rome, when these plagues would come in, everybody would scatter from the town. But do you know who would stay? Is the Christians, and they would take care of their pagan neighbor, they would take care of their children, they would watch over them. And this is how towns were preserved. This is the way that people who dedicated themselves to the reading of Scripture lived. You see schools and hospitals. Many of these were started historically in the name of Jesus. The civil rights movement was birthed out of deep conviction from the Scriptures. Many, much of the humanitarian work that we see around the world to end global poverty comes out of a deep conviction from the Scriptures. So I think for many of us in here, you kind of just come here to listen to maybe your 40-minute TED Talk for the week on what the Bible is. Or you've chosen to pick and choose what you like out of it and what you don't really like. This is our modern problem. And let me tell you this. While many of us in here don't read the Bible, I thought one of the most paralyzing statistics that I saw is that teenagers, 3% of teenagers, read the Bible. And if this is a book that ultimately we care about, and I genuinely believe that we do, and we want to like it, we want to know how to read it, then something has to change. You know, for Jewish people, they would say that the Bible is a problem to be solved. Well, us evangelicals, it's a message to be proclaimed. You know, they would also say that studying the Bible is more important than obeying the Bible. Because if you don't know what you're obeying, all of a sudden your obedience can actually become disobedience. And your disobedience can lead to some of these great problems that we're talking about. And so I want to ask, why should we, why should we trust the Bible? Why should we trust it? Why should we listen to it? And this answer is going to be a bit simple, but I want it to be the beginning of maybe a paradigm shift for you, a different way of looking at it. I believe that many of us in here want to be followers of Jesus. 
And therefore, we want our life and our life's roadmap and our habits and our rhythms and our rituals to look like those of Jesus. And so that means we have to have the same relationship with the Scriptures that Jesus had with the Scriptures. If our end goal is to be like Jesus, then we have to have a similar relationship to the Scriptures that Jesus had. And you want to know what? Jesus was obsessed with the Bible. From a young age, he probably had it memorized as a kid. The whole thing, the entire law, the writings, the prophets, the Old Testament that we would think of as today, Jesus probably had the whole thing memorized. I'm not saying that there's anybody in here that probably has that same relationship with the Bible that Jesus has, but this is a journey. And we want to become more like him. We want to win at the game of life. And our end goal has to be having that type of relationship. So you open your Bibles again with me to Matthew 5, 17 through 18. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' famous sermon. Many of us know, and this is what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, as you know, this is maybe an Old Testament or a, a way of an, a colloquial for thinking about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, he says, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is making the claim that he is carrying this story of Israel forward. He is the one carrying it forward. And you see this take place. I mean, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they saw this whole thing as a continuation, a fulfillment. The early church, the letters from Paul, the letters that we read in the New Testament today, they felt that what they were writing was a continuation of this story, the story from the law, the story from the prophets, and that this was beginning to fill, fulfill God's work that he began through Israel. The Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is a text for living our lives, and it reveals a God-created, a God-ordered, a God-blessed world, and it's where we're supposed to find ourselves at home. I think a great illustration comes from an old scholar, his name's Karl Barth, and he has this way of talking about what the Bible does when we begin to enter into it. He says, imagine a people that live inside of an old warehouse. And it started out with two folks, and they grew up, and there was families, and eventually there was an economy, and there was trade. And in this old warehouse was these, you know, glass windows, 
But nobody had ever taken time to wipe the old dirt and dust off of them. But finally, there was this generation of kids who eventually wiped off those windows. And they were standing around, and all the kids gathered around, looking out the window. And what they see out there is people. And there's green grass, and there's blue skies, and these people are looking up at something, and the kids try to look up, and what do they see? A roof. They see a tin roof. And eventually, some of these kids have the audacity to bust a hole into the side of the warehouse. And they began to go outside, and they look, and they touch the green grass, and they look at the blue skies, and they see that there is something so much more out there. Let me say it like this. There's an entirely different game that we're supposed to be playing. We've been running around in this little warehouse playing our game, thinking how to win at it, burning ourselves out, experiencing a life where we're anxious and drained, and there's something totally else out there. Could you also imagine how weird it would feel to step into that other world? Seeing that for the first time? How bad you just wish you could run back to the life that you knew? But believe me, there's a much, much better world out there, and I think that the Bible is kind of like this. It teaches us, it tells the story of how God is involved in human history and how he is reclaiming what is his. But you know what that means? You know what it means, what it looks like to actually discover that on our own? It means that we have to engage it. It means that we have to read it. It means that we need to develop that kind of uh, meditation and delight, that Haggah with the Scriptures. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide some suggestions here. We're not going to try to read the Bible in a year. We're not going to try to read the Bible in six months. But I want to encourage maybe a shift in our spirituality a shift in our life with God where we could develop a new way for seeing how to win at the game of life. This might take a little bit of risk for some of you, but I would like you, if you're in here, to raise your hand. If you deeply desire to actually maybe read the Bible more than you do. There's a lot of us. So the question is, what does it take? What does that look like? We've got plenty of time to spend on our phones. We've got plenty of time to watch Netflix and television. We have time for a lot of different activities, but what does it look like to create space to engage scripture where it's not just about information, but it's about formation.
if we really do believe that as we open up the words of Scripture, we read the story of God, we read the words of the psalmist, we see how Jesus interacted in the Gospels, that those words might actually get into us and do something. What does it look like to open up? If, if you raised your hand, write it down. Write a thought down. Write your conviction down. What does it look like to create just 10 15 minutes in a day, each day, to read the scriptures. I can't tell you how to do that. You know, I'm also going to provide a suggestion. Why don't we consider taking a posture of learning to meditate on the scriptures? This last week, you know, each day I would maybe read over Psalm 1 10, 15 times in a row. I didn't accomplish a whole lot. I didn't read a bunch of books in the Bible, but I just tried to sit and stick with this scripture to let it get into me, to actually maybe work towards memorizing it. What if there's just one, one chunk or one passage that you actually would just sit with and read and read aloud and let it wash over you? And then my last suggestion is when you begin to have those questions, when it actually challenges maybe, maybe a popular belief, maybe something that goes against your grain, maybe something that other people wouldn't agree with you on or that you don't agree with other people on, why don't you maybe look to the left and the right and why don't you talk about that with one another? The book of Acts says that the early church dedicated themselves to the reading, the studying of, of Scripture. You cannot read this book in a vacuum. You can't just read it on your own, but it has to be done with other people. And I did begin to wonder of what this church would look like, what this community would look like, what all of our life together would look like if we would begin to make these subtle shifts of reading the scriptures every day, of meditating on them, Hagah, on the scriptures. And we would talk about them. Think of the depth you would begin to experience in your relationships. Think of the ways you would begin to experience God. And as Eugene Peterson said, what does it result in? These cups of cold water for the poor. This healing of all the nations. These deep and rich and meaningful lives that we all long for and desire. I actually believe that much could happen if we took this shift to live a life rooted in the scriptures. I'm going to invite um, the, the band up and uh, we're going to pray and then go into a time of commissioning. Jesus, I uh, often think 
that there is a lot that we already know. And that sometimes the hardest things in life are to be reminded of what we desire and to figure out how to put that into practice. So if anybody in this room is like me, need a lot of grace in this one. And I think the scary thing about following you is that it's not really an easy task and you demand a lot of our lives. So my prayer is that none of us will be motivated out of shame or guilt, but that your love would draw us, Jesus. That Holy Spirit, you would fill our hearts, that you would give us passions and desires and stirrings and callings, and that God, ultimately, you would speak and reveal yourself to us as we engage your story, your love for humanity. God, may we come to know you more. May we come to know your mission even greater. And may we come to know our role as agents and what you're doing in the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the only world we know, and for now this rent.